The Great Courses Plus is offering listeners of the BEE podcast an opportunity to get a full month of free video courses when you sign up using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while. If you're listening to this podcast, you'll love The Great Courses Plus, offering engaging video lectures from award-winning professors. This special offer allows you to get a full month free to watch any of their hundreds of courses from a variety of topics like literature, history, psychology, photography. One course I recommend is Analysis and Critique, How to Engage and Write About Anything. Presented by Professor Armstrong, the lectures in this course guide you through the essential skills to become a better writer. With The Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, from your mobile devices, tablet, laptop, TV. Watch the courses all at once or stop and resume later on your schedule. Sign up today to get one month free as one of my listeners. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. The following program is a podcast one.com production. Oh, baby. Move closer to me. I've had all that I can stand. Take hold of me with your hands. Oh, baby, you give me the chills. Whisper low in my ear. Let me know how it feels. Just to know you are near Your body gives me a thrill As it leans against mine I love how it feels With your jeans against mine I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Paul Schrader. Chilliness, coldness, remoteness, distance, austerity, minimalism, these are words that can apply to the styles of some of the greatest filmmakers who operated with a God's eye neutrality. This doesn't mean their movies lack passion, but that they relay their vision of the world without the obvious emotional hyperbole or the aggressive editorializing that Hollywood favors over subtlety and indirection. One would argue that the very nature of the medium of movies encourages bigness, momentum, the grand flourish, visual spectacle. And yet there are the rare filmmakers who fuse the two together, whether it was Hitchcock or Antonioni or Kubrick. This restraint doesn't really play in mainstream American filmmaking or even in the American vernacular. It's an aesthetic that filmmakers rarely embrace. And yet the very nature of looking through a camera at things you shouldn't be seeing, most movies being narratives about secret things, already suggests a passive voyeuristic approach to your subjects, and it is reflected in the way an audience watches a movie, as a passive observer as well. 
Sometimes that smoothness, that calmness, that distance, that remove, that lack of sentiment is really the essence of the voyeuristic experience. The camera can editorialize and force you into feeling, or it can play it a different way. It can show you things neutrally, and you have to bring something to the picture, a picture that has a complicated and contradictory character at the center, a morally ambiguous nature that the movie is not resolving for you. Sometimes these are the greatest pleasures of movies when you are not swept along by the tide of forced feelings, a certain kind of movie pressures you into. And instead it's the indirection and style, the mood and atmosphere that you respond to, and not the more obvious components in most American movies, like the over-emphatic screenplay, for example. But that's not to say those movies can't be enjoyable either. Of course they both coexist, and I've loved certain Spielberg movies, though not in the same way I love an Antonioni or Bergman or Romare or Godard movie. Hitchcock's greatness often lies in how cold and daunting he can be, how cruel and withholding. It's a kind of emotional austerity that can end up moving you in the same way a sappy love story can. Kubrick's Barry Lyndon is perhaps one of the greatest examples of this approach. The visual beauty is staggering. Kubrick's control is hypnotic, as is his showmanship. The main character is remote, cold, and unlikable, and is center stage for three hours. And yet this approach to the overview of the character begins to yield dividends in so many more ways than if Kubrick had approached this in a more emotionally conventional manner or in a more overtly comical style if he had gone all Tom Jones on his adaptation of Thackeray's Comedy of Manners. The remoteness of Barry Lyndon is what gives it an alienated majesty. In February of 1980, when I was 15 and saw American Gigolo at the National Theater in Westwood, I had no idea that the austerity of Paul Schrader's American Gigolo was influenced by the French minimalist filmmaker Robert Bresson, or that Schrader had lifted the ending of American Gigolo for Bresson's film Pickpocket. Later, when writing the Canyon screenplay for Paul, I wrote the penultimate scene involving an alibi between Lindsay Lohan and James Dean as an updated riff on that final scene of Pickpocket, but American Gigolo was my influence when writing the Canyons and not Bresson. The impact American Gigolo had on me is now impossible to tally, as is the impact it had on the culture. And it's not as if American Gigolo is a great film. It is not. And even its writer-director Paul Schrader would agree with me on that. But in the way it changed the way we look and objectify men, and the way it altered how I thought about Los Angeles, its influence is huge and undeniable. We are in 1979 Los Angeles, the era where its denizens dine at Mamizan and Perinos and Scandia and La Dome. And Julian Kay is the American gigolo of the title, living in a chic Westwood apartment adorned in Armani, driving around in a convertible Mercedes and making his living as a male prostitute for wealthy older women while haunting the Beverly Hills Hotel. And he is extraordinarily beautiful, the movie capturing Richard Gere at the height of his beauty. Julian has two pimps who supply him with work. One is a woman played by Nina Van Palant, a divorcee who lives in Malibu, and the other is a big bad black man played by Bill Duke who lives in a high-rise festooned with Warhol prints on the west side. We are not sure that the woman knows about the other pimp, and maybe this matters, maybe this doesn't at first. It reveals itself later. What does matter is that Julian is a happy, superficial capitalist, and we have very little of any backstory on him. He just exists, floating through this world. He tells someone at one point that he was born in Torino, but we don't know if this is true, because in the previous scene, he has already lied to a client that he had been a pool boy at the Beverly Hills Hotel in his youth. There is a murder that Julian is framed for, and the movie becomes a crime thriller. Narratively, it's somewhat standard, and the way it's resolved is clean and simple. But none of that matters, because it is the design of the movie that is so stunning and seductive. 
This was Paul Schrader's third movie as a director, and everything he learned on his first two movies pays off here. The camera movements, the gorgeous sets, the dramatic lighting, and especially his acid vision of Los Angeles as a gorgeous haunted wasteland. This was a brightly colored, sunlit neo-noir, ominous and beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful L.A. movies ever made, and it was of its moment. There was something late 70s new wave about it, minimal and chic, its portrayal of L.A. lush and corrosive. And there was something gay about it as well, which seemed everywhere in the culture in that moment before AIDS closed that door for at least a few decades. As I talked about on the Rose McGowan episode of this podcast, movies had never seen a man photographed, objectified the way Richard Gere was, the camera ogling his beauty, roaming over his skin, devouring his adolescent petulance, and hypnotized by his flesh. And Gere was perhaps the first leading man in a big studio movie to go full frontal. Jan Michael Vincent had actually done it years earlier in Buster and Billy, but that was a much smaller movie. And John Travolta was going to star in American Gigolo, but walked away just weeks from production. And an audience might have rooted for Travolta's earnestness compared to Gear's blankness. Travolta might have humanized the movie. He might have instinctively brought humor to it. And he would have given the movie a realism. With Gear at its center, the movie is a chilly and remote experience. And at this point in Gear's career, humor eludes him. There's a sadness to Gear, but this doesn't erase the notion that Julian Kay is an idea, an abstraction, not a character, and certainly not likable. And yet the movie made Gear a star. Gear's blankness and the movie's austerity collided, and audiences went with it in the spring of 1980. The model, Lauren Hutton, plays Michelle, the unhappy wife of a senator, and she's quite stunning as well, but the movie loves Gear. The tension of the movie comes from Gear's beauty and narcissism. Women had always been photographed this way, but men hadn't. It was new. It was gay. And it ended up influencing everything from the popularity of GQ magazine to the way Calvin Klein started advertising men. Watching the movie recently, it's quite amazing that this movie was a hit. It's deliberately paced, sometimes glacially so, compared to today's market, and it flirts with pretension more often than it doesn't. And in 2016, you can't quite believe this art object, with very few commercial concessions, was a big studio movie produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. The coldness of American Gigolo has aged quite nicely. It influenced me as well in terms of how I looked at L.A. as I was just starting in 1980, what was becoming the Less Than Zero project that culminated in the publishing of a version of this project in 1985 as a novel. And though I took many of my cues from Joan Didion and L.A. Noir to bands like The Doors and X and The Eagles, American Gigolo became a key template that I was constantly referencing to the point that I named the teenage male prostitute in the novel Julian as well. What I located at 15 that I also responded to, and also didn't, was the moral ambiguity of not only the subject matter, but the filmmaking as well. I couldn't make up my mind what the movie was selling me, and I liked that. It was so cool and visually overwhelming, with Blondie's Call Me bursting out as an anthem over the opening credits. But it was also dark and pessimistic, with Richard Gere's beauty as both something to crave and then find something deeply ambiguous about. That fall, Robert Redford's Ordinary People spoke most passionately to me as a 16-year-old, but now I can barely watch it. American Gigolo, for all its flaws, I can rewatch endlessly. American Gigolo came out when movies could have this kind of cultural influence pre-internet, in the same way novels could as well. And movies now are looking more and more like a 20th century art form. Not a 21st century art form, but something that belongs solely to the 20th century. Movies and novels no longer work as a way for us to explore unseen cultures, to go to a theater because we can see Richard Gere naked standing in his Westwood apartment or maneuvering through a gay club or hanging out on sunlit Rodeo Drive, letting us be a voyeur to the wealthy world of Beverly Hills that American Gigolo takes place in. Instagram has replaced this. 
30 movies opened in L.A. last Friday. Yes, I counted. And 30 more are going to open this Friday. Yes, that's a total of 60 movies opening around the L.A. area in less than two weeks. And I have no desire, nor do you, to see any of them. Most of them are opening in one theater in Santa Monica or a multiplex in North Hollywood. And the majority of them are also available in VOD. Very few are opening wide. This is the movie era where we ended up. The grand national theater where I saw American Gigolo in 1980 and so many of the defining movies of my childhood and adolescence was torn down years ago. An apt metaphor, perhaps, as to where we are now compared to where we were then in what was a vibrant movie culture that allowed a movie as strange as American Gigolo to connect with a wide audience. Paul Schrader has written most famously Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. He also wrote the version of Raging Bull that got it made. And I don't know what is left to say about either of those two movies or how much we will go into them with this podcast. Uh, there was The Last Temptation of Christ, as well as Brian De Palma's Obsession, Peter Weir's The Mosquito Coast, among many others. Among the 18 films he's directed include Blue Collar, Hardcore, Cat People, Mishima, which Schrader considers his finest film, Light Sleeper, Affliction for which James Coburn won a supporting actor Oscar, the Bob Crane biopic, Autofocus, and the Kickstarter-funded L.A. neo-noir The Canyons, and many other films as well. For those of you who don't know the basic facts, I'll go through them very quickly. Schrader was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and his family practiced in the Calvinist Christian Reformed Church, and he was not allowed to watch movies or television until 17 when he was able to sneak away and see his first movie, which was The Absent-Minded Professor from 1961. He was a young film critic in the mid-1960s, and his influences ultimately became Ozu, Brasson, Bergman, John Ford, Hitchcock, Peck and Paw, and John Renoir's The Rules of the Game, which Schrader has called the quintessential movie, which represents all of the cinema. The most influential film for Schrader, the writer, was Pickpocket by Brasson. The most influential film for Schrader, the director, is Bertolucci's The Conformist. He went to UCLA Film School with the help of his mentor, the hugely famous American film critic Pauline Kael, and he also got kicked out of UCLA Film School. At a certain point in this narrative, in his mid-twenties, Schrader wrote, along with his brother, a Japanese gangster script called The Yakuza that they sold for 325 k and which was later made into a stilted and ponderous Sidney Pollock movie from 1974 starring Robert Mitchum. $325,000 was the highest price ever paid for an original script up until that moment. And remember, this is in early 1970s dollars. Schrader had hit the jackpot. This was followed in 1976 by scripts for Brian De Palma's Obsession and then The Breakthrough, which is his script from Martin Scorsese's masterpiece, Taxi Driver. He also wrote the first draft of Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind before Spielberg jettisoned it and wrote a new draft himself. Schrader directed his first film in 1978, which was Blue Collar, starring Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel. Schrader, it should be noted, over his almost 50-year career, has had his professional difficulties by mostly staying true to his uncompromising vision. Studio a tour in the 1970s and into the 1980s, and now in the past decade, a kind of renegade guerrilla filmmaker has emerged. His new film is called Dog Eat Dog, and it's unlike anything Schrader has done. He has described Dog Eat Dog as being inspired by the post-rules generation, meaning he wanted to throw out all the rules about propriety and do something really down and dirty and nasty. And Dog Eat Dog is the nastiest movie Schrader has ever made. It is so wild and reckless and surreal, so unlike the smooth formalism that is reflected in the bulk of Schrader's work, that the movie is authentically punk 
and anarchic by comparison. It's a gonzo crime drama that stars Nicolas Cage and William Defoe, based on the novel by writer and actor Eddie Bunker. He played Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs, and it's set in post-crash Cleveland about a trio of recently released jail buddies who decide to kidnap the baby of a wealthy family and hold the baby for ransom. And then, of course, everything goes wrong. Hyper-stylized and absurdist dog-eat-dog is a melange of styles, sometimes handheld, sometimes elegant tracking shots, sometimes black and white, other times lurid color, animation. It's a druggy, gory, profane movie, and its humor is so un-PC that it is bound to trigger the overly sensitive, moral humanist film critic looking for the aspirational in every movie they review. Doggy Dog is insane, possessed, and Schrader has never been this sleazily energetic. He turns it up to 11 in almost every scene. It's in some ways an updating of what Oliver Stone was attempting with natural-born killers, but without the hand-wringing and moralizing, it's a giant fuck you. And it opens next month. Paul, I want to ask you about the theory that you have always had an intellectual approach to movie making rather than an emotional approach. And this lies in the fact that you had no childhood or adolescent movie going experience and that instead your education was really later as a student of film. And the filmmakers that impacted you were Brasson, Ozu, Bergman, Antonioni, Godard, as well as the world of noir. So you didn't grow up with a childlike movie love, but your first love is actually intellectual cinema. And your films are very neutral and some might say chilly. And even though you were highly employable in Hollywood and you wrote a few famous films, you have never been nominated for an Oscar, neither for Taxi Driver or for Raging Bull. And I guess the first question before we get into Dog Eat Dog is, do you think that this was a reason based on aesthetics that maybe the writing branch just didn't like your style? In 1977, Taxi Driver doesn't get nominated for Best Script. The script's for Rocky, two foreign hits, Seven Beauties and Kuzan Cuisine, the Blacklist drama The Front and Network by Patty Chayosky, which wins are what gets nominated. In 1981, it's a tougher category, I suppose. The Australian drama Breaker Morant, The Elephant Man, The Stunt Man, Coal Miner's Daughter, and Ordinary People, which wins, are the nominees for Best Script, but no nomination for the script of Raging Bull. And I know the Oscars are the Oscars, but did you ever think there were other reasons why you were not nominated? I mean, Taxi Driver was only nominated for four Oscars, and Scorsese was not nominated for Best Director. It was um, De Niro, Jodie Foster. It got nominated for Picture and Score by Bernard Herrmann. And Herman was also nominated for Obsession, that other film you wrote in 1976. But Raging Bull was nominated for 10 Oscars and the screenplay was not. And I guess what I'm getting at is, did you ever think there was a kind of conspiracy against you? Did you think that the writer's branch actively did not nominate you those two years, that you were maybe too cold, too cerebral, too successful? Uh, I have no idea. And, and actually, it's not a very profitable place to go to or waste your time speculating on. Uh, I remember telling Marty some years ago when he was desperate to get an Oscar, I said, if, you know, if that's your priority, Marty, you need some new priorities. At this point in your career, you've moved into this freeform place, it seems, where the pose doesn't matter anymore. I mean, as if it ever kind of did to you, I don't know. But you're willing to try things, go out on a limb, embrace new structures. I mean, it feels that you haven't been following any rules. I mean... Do you feel you've been liberated by the changes that have happened in the movie culture? Or is it an expression of your anger, your frustration at how everything has turned out? Because Dog Eat Dog definitely represents something very different from anything you've ever done. And I'm wondering, okay, well, why now? Well, um, it's an odd kind of uh, genesis of this project because 
Now, two years ago, Nick Cage and I did a film that was taken away from me, re-edited and, and, and dumped, and, uh, and um, this was very painful. And I said to Nick at that time, I said, you know, should we live long enough, we should work together again and remove the stain from our clothes, my clothes. <laughs> He's got too many stains. Um, so I was just sort of looking for something that we could collaborate on that would be successful and would be my fuck you to these people who treated me so badly. And uh, I was asked to read this script, and uh, the opening scene is quite outrageous. And I, Shocking. I, and Shocking. I, I loved it. I said, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, you know maybe, maybe this is the one. You know, maybe Nick will like this. So uh, I, and I was able to get... You know, say, if we do this, we'll have final cut. Nobody will tell us what to do. And uh, he read it, and he said, yeah, I'd like to do it, but I'd like not to play the crazy character, but the straight character. But now, all of a sudden, I had a film that I was going to direct with Nick. And it was a crime film. Now, I'm not a crime director. I would not have uh, written this film. Uh, the film would not have been offered to me ordinarily. That's true. And um, so now I have to sit down and think, what does it mean to make a crime film in 2016? You know, after Scorsese, after Tarantino, after Guy Ritchie. And so, you know, you start studying, where is this genre now? And then I had this idea to put together a team of people from essentially outside movies. Uh, it was the first um, solo screen credit for all my department heads, all six of them. And uh, they came from other fields, from experimental music and uh, fashion and commercials. And I, I, I called them my post-rules generation because... You know, there was a generation that uh, made the rules and a generation that codified the rules, and then there was a generation that broke the rules by generation. Then there was a generation that laughed at the rules, uh, Quentin's, and then now there's a generation that doesn't know there were ever rules in the first place because they started making films on their phone at the age of seven or eight. And uh, there was no... The only rules were video games, commercials, and the Internet. So I, I brought this group together. We met uh, every week at a diner in New York. And, uh, you know, I said to them right from the get-go, I said, you know, the bad news is we don't have enough money to do this film the way it should be done. The good news is I have final cut, and we can make any fucking film we feel like it. I, I'm, I am answerable to no one. And so let's just free our imaginations. Anything is on the table. There's only one thing you can't do, which is be boring. And that was the the mantra, mantra, and it it took me to uh, a place I had never been (laughs) in filmmaking. Well, watching the violence in Dog Eat Dog, I was thinking about how this is the farthest you have gone with movie violence. I mean, it's shocking, but it's also funny at times. And sometimes I've been noticing lately how um, little violence in movies seems to impact us after years now of like seeing real death and carnage uh, and executions and beheadings and people actually getting shot with their killings being broadcast mm-hmm. on Facebook Live and we are now watching real people dying on our laptops and screens and, you know I, the videos from the aftermath of that truck uh, rampage in Nice uh, were posted almost minutes after it happened, and if you were unlucky enough to see that carnage, it was worse than anything you could see, if you could find in movies. And I'm just wondering where are we compared to Taxi Driver, 
or even something like No Country for Old Men a decade ago in terms of how movie violence functions. I mean, what were you thinking about in terms of staging this outrageous violence, very bloody in Dog Eat Dog? What did you want to do with that? What was your approach? Well, you know, the book and the script uh, were not a comedy. And as we got into it, I started thinking, this shit is funny. Yeah. And uh, and it sort of morphed into a, a kind of surreal thing, and it became, in a way, more a film more about crime films than a film about criminals. It's a kind of uh, a rift on the genre itself, uh, which is why you know it feels a bit detached, and why you don't, you know, it's it's almost like cartoon violence. It doesn't uh, you know have that immediacy, and uh, I. You know, you asked the question, and I guess I don't have an answer because I never really thought of it as uh, violence, just like I never really thought of these characters as terribly realistic either. Right. Well, I don't want to make movie violence a moral thing either. I mean, because violence in movies is entertaining. I mean, on this podcast, we've had Quentin Tarantino and Eli Roth extol their love for violence in movies. Quentin Tarantino almost sees it as akin to the car chase or the musical number. But Peter Bogdanovich uh, was on the podcast, and he was talking about how morally repugnant he does find movie violence. And I think I understood what Peter was talking about. He was really complaining about the violence that was also in the Marvel movies and where cities are completely demolished and you don't see a hint of mass death. Uh, mass death as antiseptic CGI experience. And I was sitting through the remake of um, The Magnificent Seven. And, you know, it's a very clean and absurd PG-13 family-friendly movie. The longest, the longest fight sequence in movies. That's true. And they recreate it in, in, in the remake. But um, I, I think it should have been shot as an R. And I found myself wondering, where's the blood? You know, I, I'm watching hundreds and hundreds of people being shot and stabbed and arrowed and hacked up and blown up. And it was very little, if any, blood at all. And it, which would, of course, have given the movie an R rating, which the corporation releasing the movie, of course, does not want, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just assumed it was an R. Oh, no, no. It's a very, very clean. There's no blood in it. And because there was no blood on it in it, compared to Dog Eat Dog, it did feel a little immoral, without making a big deal about it, that I'm supposed to be enjoying this without experiencing the reality of what was happening, I guess. And, you know, there are more deaths in The Magnificent Seven than there are in The Wild Bunch, you know. So the difference is you don't care about the deaths of The Magnificent Seven in any way. I don't know. Do you connect with that at all? Do you think about that at all when you're watching movies now? Well, I, I don't have much appetite for, you know, this constant carnage. It kind of uh, wears you down. And, and now you can't even escape it on TV either. And, uh, I mean, you know, there has to be a degree of intelligence, imagination, wit involved uh, Otherwise, it's just, you know. I want to talk about Matthew Wilder, who's the screenwriter for Doggy Dog. And I guess I want to ask, you know, so Robert Town rewrites the Yakuza, and did he really help it after you sold it for what was then the highest price ever for an original screenplay? There must have been something about it that originally didn't need Robert Town. And in the case of Raging Bull, Marduk Martin writes the original script. It doesn't work for anybody. You are brought in to rewrite it, and your rewrite is what gets the movie made. But De Niro and Scorsese do their own unaccredited revisions. The Last Temptation of Christ was rewritten by Scorsese and Jay Cox. Certain scripts written by others you have not touched as a director. Harold Pinter's The Comfort of Strangers, Myself with the Canyons. 
What if someone other than Scorsese had directed your script for Taxi Driver? What if Mark Rydell had directed the Taxi Driver script? You know, so the question really is, when I'm thinking about the script for Dog Eat Dog, what does the screenplay really do? What is its function? I mean, the screenplay is not the movie. The movie is not the screenplay. I'm, I just directed a web series that I also wrote, and in total, it's the length of a feature film. And I was really surprised when I was directing it how malleable I felt that the screenplay was. And how casually I treated the screenplay to a certain degree. John Carpenter said that the screenplay is something that exists at first to just get the money to make the movie. And what happens after to the screenplay is a completely different thing. What does the screenplay do for you? And what did um, Matthew Wilder do in his adaptation that was so attractive? You know, obviously, uh, each case is uh, separate. Uh, when you have a writer like Harold Pinter, whose theme is language is the tool we use not to communicate, well, then language itself is extremely important. You know, it's not realistic language. It is a fabricated form of code which is being used to show that people are are not communicating. So then language becomes very important. Other films where you have a kind of loosey-goosey thing where you have someone like Richard Pryor who's always sort of moving around in the dialogue, that's fun too. So uh, you can't generalize. Uh, In this case, um, I I did a a pass on the script. Um, I I do something sort of of quasi-ethicalness. I did it with your script too. And bait. Both, both scripts. Well, well, but what I do is I don't rewrite them so Correct. much. Is I retype them. Yes. And so that I rewrite all of the words, and then when I'm on the set and I look at it and I say, oh, I, I remember when I wrote this, mm-hmm. but I didn't write it. I just retyped it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way of taking ownership over it. Now, in the case of Dog Eat Dog, uh, you had a script that was too long for our budget, and so about 15 pages had to come out. Uh, it was essentially a three-act script, and it had to be made into a two-act script. And also, uh, it, it had a whole section that went on after the character Mad Dog died, which was very anticlimactic. Uh, so, you know, it's at that point, it's easier for me just to pull 15 pages out because I know the 15 pages that are not going to end up on screen. And it's easier for me to do it than try to explain to Matt. You know, uh, in this new economics of film, you really can't afford to have deleted scenes anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, those are shooting days that you have lost so there are no deleted scenes in doggy dog Uh, no deleted scenes in the canyons Uh, you know there was no deleted scenes in affliction Uh, you just shoot right to the bone and uh, and you know no one can do that rewrite uh, better than the director during the heyday of Sid Field and Bob McKee, you know, two screenwriting gurus uh, who uh, kind of ruined a generation of writers by the notion that there are about 20 rules a writer must adhere to in order to write a successful screenplay. A lot of people bought into it. I mean, I, I knew a lot of screenwriters who bought those books and went to those seminars. You know, it's all about the three-act structure, the inciting incident by page 15, the arc of characters, the hero's journey and downfall at a certain point, the hero's rise, you know, these notions now are being destroyed every week by TV storytelling. And they're being destroyed by the way young filmmakers are telling stories now in short form. 
Um, but these ideas were very popular in the in the in the Mike Ovitz era, the the post Heaven's Gate era, when agents and not artists were you know became the most the biggest reason why a script project. Uh, movie did or didn't get greenlight. And Tarantino says that when he writes a screenplay, he's essentially writing a novel and not a screenplay. And the idea of following rules to write in a successful movie is kind of idiotic. Do you agree with any of that or yeah, not? I, mean, I never bought into any of that. Uh, I, you know, uh, evolved my own theories of, of writing. And first and foremost is I do not believe screenwriting is, in fact, a form of writing at all. I think it's part of the oral tradition, not part of the literary tradition. And it has to do with me telling you a story. It has to do with your uncle talking about going hunting and the dog got sick and the birds got away. And if I can tell you a story for 40 minutes and hold your interest, I have a movie. And if I can't, I don't. No matter how long I write, you know. And so I try not to write until I have it. That I, I know, because if you start telling a story over and over again, and you outline it, re-outline it each time you tell it, so you, you know, it's gradually growing in length, and now you're putting page comments on your outline so you know more or less what's going to happen at minute 63 uh, in, the, in your story. And you're telling this. Uh, one of two things will happen. One is you'll get sick of it and it will die. Now, that's a great day because you have just saved yourself the task of writing a script. The other thing will happen is the script will get very antsy and will demand to be written. It will say, enough of this. Don't tell the story anymore. Please, write it down. And then you know you can write it. And uh, so I, uh, I, I don't write until I have the story in an oral fashion. Uh, which also includes, you know, hand gestures and illustrations and stuff like that, you know. And I, I, I tell students that if you want, really want to know if you have a movie, invite a friend for a drink or coffee, tell them your story, get about uh, two-thirds of the way in it, get up, go to the bathroom, come back, and then just start talking about the events of the day. If they don't say, how does the story end, you shouldn't be writing that script. (laughs) Matthew Wilder has been singing your praises. He's very, very happy with the film. And despite uh, a couple of, uh, you know, a little bit of arguments you and I might have had over the canyons, I'm very pleased by how that movie came out and what you did with that. Is that true for a lot of these screenwriters who you directed did you ever have any major complaints from them? The, the screenplays that you didn't work on, but say someone like Matthew Wilder or myself, it's happened a couple times. You've directed other people's scripts. Are yeah, people, I, are I, the, I, you know, Harold was very happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did this film with, with Larry and Scott. Uh, autofocus, had, uh, you know, they were very happy. I, uh, even when I made some big changes, mm-hmm. like in Cat People, the original script ended up with a kind of um, horror conflagration where the monster is trapped in the burning house and destroyed. And I changed the ending so that rather than kill the monster, he makes love to it. He, he fucks yes, it. Yes, that's right. And then is able to keep it in a shrine and worship it. 
Now, that, that's a rather radical shift. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> but, 1982. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, the writer, but the writer loved it. Well, it's strange because, look, you have not gotten along with some of the people that you have written screenplays for. I mean, Taxi Driver happens because Brian De Palma introduced you to Martin Scorsese, and you knew De Palma primarily because he was directing Obsession. But you no, no, and- I, I knew him because uh, I was a film critic and I had interviewed him, and it turned out we both played chess. So we were playing chess. And, oh, and yeah. we're, while we're playing chess, I say to him, you know, I, I, I hadn't written Obsession or any of those things yet. I said to him, you know, I, I wrote a script once. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I said, you don't have to read it. I just wanted to mention that I wrote a script once. Mm-hmm. And, and that script was? Taxi Driver. But he's the one who, ha- who introduces you to Scorsese. Yeah, he gave the script to Marty. But you did ultimately have a weird kind of falling out with De Palma over Obsession, which was a script you wrote that De Palma shot and was released in 1976. How long did that fallout last? Did it, did it last? Well, I, 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 um, I'm afraid it was pretty permanent because I just saw the documentary about Brian. What did you think of that movie? It's a movie by Noah Baumbach and Jake Palter called De Palma. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, more, it's more than you need to know about Brian De Palma. That's what it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, it's entertaining for those of us who were around. But, um, so I, I saw Brian after the screening and, uh, you know, I had tried to contact him a number of times over the years. I'm still, you know, in regular contact with Marty. And uh, Brian never responded. And then I saw him and Boy, it was just cold as ice. So that's that. Really? Did the same thing happen to... I know you had a falling out also to a degree with Spielberg over the Close Encounter script. Did you ever resolve that falling out as well? Uh, not not really. I mean, uh, Steve and I are uh, on, on friendly terms. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really a, a kind of ideological falling out. The only thing that um, I was angered about because he had a right to go off. He had another film in mind. But um, he asked me to give up my uh, share of the credit, and I obliged him, uh, only later to find out that I had two and a half points connected to that share of the credit, Mm -hmm. and to go into the movie theater and look and say, I remember some of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, and so then I thought, well, I'll make up with Steven. I said, you know, I said, Steven, even the, I, I, I understand, but I, it would be nice if you gave me a token gift, you know, like give me a Rolex, just something to acknowledge that the role I played. Mm-hmm. And he said, no. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you know your screenplay is online. You can find your oh. original screenplay for Close Encounter the Third Kind. Fascinating. A, fa- a very different movie, of yeah, course. Very. But really interesting to read compared to what... Spielberg ultimately wanted to do. Well, well the, it, I remember the conversation where this all came down because I had in, in mind a sort of prototype of my namesake, uh, Paul, a man who debunks uh, UFO experiences, and then on the way to Damascus, he has a sighting and then spends the rest of his life uh, trying to be the first person to leave the planet. So he is a, a very kind of Shakespearean biblical kind of character. And Steve and I were arguing about this. And I said to Steve, and I said, I refuse to write a script about the first man to leave our planet only to go to another world and set up a McDonald's. 
And Steve said to me, that's exactly who I want. <laughs> that's exactly who I wanted to be about. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, his instincts were whatever. I mean, are you a Spielberg fan? Are there any of his movies that you have responded to that you've liked? Well, I mean, I certainly at a, at, a, at a craftsman level, you know, you have to. I mean, you know, Stephen has... You know, probably the most natural eye of any storyteller on film. You know, he just you know, knows where to put the camera, and you know, it's, it's, it's an innate gift of his. Um, it, it can get kind of tedious, but then uh, you know, you don't have to watch them all either. And finally, before we, I will not ask about any more falling out. But you know, uh, Sidney Pollack does hire Robert Town to rewrite the Yakuza, and you are paid. You were paid a fortune for it. Uh, in you know, in a in a very kind of roundabout way, your agent was very very clever about getting you that money in that in yeah. that period. But um, did you have a falling out with Robert Town over this? And well, I, I didn't even know uh, he was. Uh, we were at Warner's, and I was rewriting on the first floor. And Town had an office above me, and he was writing on the second floor. But I didn't know he was rewriting the same script I was writing. <laughs> I thought he was doing something else <laughs> with Sydney. It turned out he, he was he was up there. I mean, what had happened was that um, we had essentially written a Yakuza gangster movie in the Toei gangster tradition and um, and that's how it should have been made um, and you know Bob Aldrich was going to do it and Bob and uh, the two Bobs didn't get along and uh, Aldrich wouldn't make it with Mitchum um, so once Sidney came in this was not Sidney's ballywick and so he wanted to someone to heighten the the more sentimental aspects of the story, the way we were aspects. Mm -hmm. Which he had made previously. Yeah. And so then the, the end product fell between two stools, you know, because, it, you know, it was like, like a big old guy with one ham on the action stool and the other ham on the romance stool, and he ends up on the floor. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what happened. You once said about Taxi Driver, which you wrote you were what, 26 when you wrote that script, roughly around there? Yeah, around there. You, you once said that, quote-unquote, Taxi Driver is a very rich piece of juvenilia, but it is juvenilia. It is an adolescent, an immature mind struggling to identify itself. The film has no maturity about it except at the talent level. And you once told Paul and Kale that Travis Bickle is actually me but without the brains. That does seem to you, when looking back at Taxi Driver, that does seem to you to be really what was going on in that moment. Because looking back at that movie, you, Scorsese, De Niro, you were all so young. And it's considered one of the greatest American movies. It's, uh, it, the disconnect is often strange. You know, People think, oh, it was so effortlessly, brilliantly plotted out, when in fact it really came from your pain, where you were in that moment in your life. Well, I mean, I, uh, I wrote it as self-therapy. I was not a screenwriter at that time. I was a film critic. And uh, I had gotten into kind of a dark place. And I needed to write. I, I needed this, this. I was becoming this person that scared me. Uh, this person, Travis Bickle. And I knew, uh, I believe that, uh, that uh, literature is, is therapeutic. And that if you can write it out, you can save yourself from living it. And that was the goal. To, uh, I, uh, I had been living in the car and I had a, a, a bleeding ulcer. I was in the hospital. And I realized I hadn't spoken to anybody in a long time. 
And all of a sudden this image occurred to me, this yellow metal coffin uh, floating in the sewers of the city. And there was a kid trapped in it. And he was surrounded by people, but he was absolutely alone. And he was in there with a gun, and he was getting angrier and angrier. And I said, well, that's it, you know, that that's my guy. And, and, and uh, so writing about him uh, restored my uh, mental balance. Uh, I, I wrote that. I put it in a drawer and left Los Angeles for six months. I uh, just traveled around the country trying to get my bearing. So it wasn't written with a, uh, a market in mind. It wasn't written. It was just written as, you know. And, and, and it turned out to be the real deal. Uh, De Niro and Scorsese and I never really discussed this character much. We just knew who, who this guy was. Now, he had been around in literature a bit, but he hadn't really been around in film yet. True. And, and uh, the, the only, the closest anyone had done was Bogdanovich with, with the... Uh, targets. With targets, but that really wasn't inside the mind of that character. No. And uh, so, and we got lucky. Uh, luck plays a big role. You know, what if we had made it a year later or a year earlier? Uh, or kept it set in L.A. when it was originally written. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, Tony Bill, who was producing it... Uh, wanted to, uh, Jeff Bridges wanted to do it and he had just done Hearts of the West and we could get it made with Jeff Bridges uh, we couldn't get it made with Bob yet and um, and uh, you know Marty and I sat down with Julia and, and said you know do we want to make this or do we want to wait for another year until Bob you know finishes uh, Godfather and then maybe we can get it financed and we decided to wait and as a result, Tony Bill uh, quit, broke up the partnership with uh, Michael and Julia Phillips. Uh, but if we had made that film with Jeff, I don't think it would have had that resonance. No. no. You also once said about Scorsese, even though he's directed uh, four major uh, movies from your scripts, Marty is not an easy person to work with. He has an inability to take criticism. He takes it like a child. And he's paranoid. He's not at all a strong man. I'm curious, what are some of the reasons that made you feel that way about him, even though I know you guys are friendly now? I'm just wondering, at what point was this emanating from you when you were thinking about Marty? I don't even remember saying that. I I don't know if I agree with it. I mean, uh, he he would never show me a work in progress simply because uh, you know I, I, I was on the set in Taiwan on silence and I, I know all about the film but I don't want him to show it to me because I don't want to have that kind of relationship with him but I, 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 I think I mean what's remarkable about Scorsese is in many ways the opposite you know that really sardonic humor and his ability to take a punch and to incorporate it into a movie. Uh, you know, you can almost hear him cackling uh, off screen in, in uh, some of his films, and you realize that he's just having the damnedest good time and that he is reacting to adversity, you know, with, a, uh, with glee. I imagine at some point in the 1970s and 1980s that there is a certain degree of socializing that goes on with being Paul Schrader in Hollywood. And, uh, I mean, even now, when you are traveling around to various film festivals and you're picking up Lifetime Achievement Awards and you're meeting mobs of people, I witnessed it firsthand in Venice when we went for the canyons, 
you do have to socialize a lot in your job. And I guess if you weren't in the heyday of the 1970s, 1980s, uh, and you weren't comfortable, let's say, with socializing, how did you cope? Because I guess I'm asking, because you've been very honest with it, as has Scorsese, did cocaine help? I mean, you've been, um, it almost killed Scorsese at one point. And you, you admitted that there was a point in your life where you had like a $12,000 a day habit. Um, what was that about? Well, I mean, uh, cocaine, you know, anybody who says the first three, three or so years on cocaine isn't fun is lying. True. Uh, and, but it I can does, attest. Yeah. But it does take its toll. Mm-hmm. And, then it, and, and then that monster that you were um, enjoying starts enjoying you. And and you're you're in the grips, so. Um, but it is a very social drug, you know. I mean, I n- never had any attraction to marijuana because I would just sit in the corner. Uh, but cocaine, I would be the life of the party. So that it was a great enabler that way, and uh, and there is that point in your career. When you're all hustling and you're all hanging together, I just ran into Walter Hill in Toronto, and I hadn't seen Walter in 35 years, you know. But I remember, you know, when you see him all the time. But once your individual careers start taking off, you, then you build your own little solar systems, and you don't need each other so much anymore. But uh, you know, there was that four or five year period where you know you're clocking each other and you're just like this pack of animals all you know looking for some prey speaking of walter hill because he's another member of uh i don't know i would say a key member of the uh hollywood of the 1970s um I guess the question really is when I hear all these names and these people that you've worked with and that you knew and that you were one of, do we really tend to over-mythologize the Hollywood of the 70s? Have we romanticized it all out of proportion? The golden age of American movies was, in fact, as we all know, a kind of anomaly, a freak occurrence when the studios shifted to a place where they kind of let artists take over to a degree. And some say it started in 1967 with Bonnie and Clyde and that it kind of ended, it crested with Heaven's Gate, um, destroying United Artists. That's kind of the simplistic version. And then it was over. Tarantino thinks it began gradually with Jaws and then Rocky and then Star Wars. To him, that's the triumvirate that kind of destroyed the early 70s um, you know, aesthetic. But when did you, when you were working as a critic and then as a screener in Hollywood, when did you begin to see the shift as think, oh, this is ending? This is this whole oh, idea. I, I saw it when I went to Japan. Uh, I, I went to Japan and lived there for a year in 84. I came back. It was different. Boom. It was, it was gone. Uh, I could feel it. It was just like walking into, into the room and it's a different room. But uh, the thing about Hollywood of a, of a certain period there in the late 60s to the mid-70s, um, wasn't that the films were better. It wasn't that the filmmakers were more talented. I think we have more talented filmmakers today than mm-hmm. we had back then. But there is one crucial thing that we had then that we don't have now and, and will never have again, which is movies were the, in the center of the social discussion. People turned to movies because they had questions. They had questions about civil rights, black power, women's rights, gay rights, militarism, uh, conformity, uh, drug use. And they wanted the movies to say, 
here's a here you know here's coming home here's unfinished woman here's uh the melvin ben peebles film you know here are films that that address these anxieties we're all sharing and the moment a, a society turns to artists for answers great art will emerge it's that simple. Whether it's in uh, after World War, after the Cold War in Eastern Europe, or whether it's in post-war Italy, or in the Cinema Nuovo in Brazil, or post-Franco, whenever ordinary people look at artists and say, "Help us understand," great art emerges. And we don't—we're not asking that of uh, of our art today, and uh, and therefore we don't take art very seriously, and therefore art isn't very important. happen the way it happened with the French New Wave, in which its major directors were also film critics. But there are examples in America of film critics becoming directors and screenwriters and producers, including yourself, Paul. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, Rod Lurie, uh, and of course, you know, Roger Ebert and Jay Cox and Paul Zinnerman. And in 1979, Paul and Kale is invited to get into the game. She is invited by Warren Beatty to help produce a James Toback movie that set up at Paramount. And a lot of people are surprised that Pauline takes the gig and leaves her post at The New Yorker and moves out to L.A. And I just want to remind listeners as to who Pauline Kale was. Pauline Kale has been mentioned on this podcast many, many times before, usually from younger filmmakers, James Gray, Eli Roth, Tarantino. And I had a long conversation about her where Tarantino said she was as influential to him as any filmmaker and that it wasn't Godard that inspired him as much as it was Kale's writings about Godard, especially her review a band of outsiders. She might not have had the audience of, say, a Roger Ebert, but she is widely regarded as the most influential film critic who ever lived. And this had to do with a couple of things. The style was jazzy and immediate and accessible, often vulgar yet elegant, hyperbolic and funny and endlessly knowledgeable. Her reviews were often more entertaining than the movies she reviewed. And the timing of Kale's fame was based on the fact that she dovetailed exactly with the moment when American film culture exploded very briefly into a kind of self-conscious auteurist moment. When a gangster picture like uh, The Godfather uh, becomes, through its kind of European influences, an example of tragic realism while also being one of the most popular movies ever made, these two things began to coexist. The commercial movie, the genre movie, now layered with a kind of glorious 70s pessimism and shot through with a European sensibility. The audiences were ready for this as well in that moment, and they made big hits out of what would seem to be movies with unlikely commercial appeal. Um, not all of them, but you know, certainly something like Taxi Driver fits that category. And for about a decade, Kale was at the forefront of writing about the American movies of the 70s as an art form for The New Yorker. And she really was the main reason why many of us as kids began to pick up The New Yorker. It was because of Kale. I mean, I can still remember as a 14-year-old standing in the supermarket reading her review of the disastrous film version of the Broadway musical The Wiz and marveling at how effortlessly she communicated her feelings as well as how detailed the review was and how funny it was too. 
She also wrote in a style that often formed a sexual bond with the movie she was reviewing. The movie either made her come or it didn't, and this is reflected in the titles of her collected work. I lost it at the movies, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, deeper into movies, taking it all in. Now, I don't want to belabor your relationship with Pauline Kael, who was your mentor, who really started it all off for you, and it is part of your bio. And there are things that, as a fan of both of yours, I really don't think I know about it. Uh, you meet Kale as she is becoming, or has started to become, this rock star critic before it really explodes for her in the 70s when she becomes, the, you know, this hugely influential writer. But in the 60s, you kind of, you randomly meet her as a young man and she takes a liking to you and encourages your film criticism and she becomes your mentor and helps get you into UCLA Film School. You had reviewed a, a, a collection of hers. You had reviewed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think in 1968, and you aligned yourself with Kale. Uh, I would imagine that your tastes overlapped, or did they not? I don't think she was a big Brisson fan, but were you on the same page with her in terms she of her taste? Describe Brisson as a thin little man who fucks thin little boys in thin little rooms. <laughs> well, I, I, I take it that was you were not on the same page with her about Brisson. You know, for, for anyone who's really sort of interested, uh, I published an article in Film Comet after she died called "My Family Drama," and it, it was about the ups and downs of my relationship with Pauline. Uh, we had two falling outs. We had, you know, three rapprochements. And I, I was, uh, you know, one of the reasons she was so powerful was because she had a feeder system because she read everything. And so that when critics, uh, when newspaper editors were looking for critics, they would call her up and she would give them suggestions. So, and we were all called the Paulettes. And so I remember quite well when she got me the job at the LA Free Press. I remember when La Chinoise came out and she called me up and said, now, uh, you're, you're going to see La Chinoise. It's going to come out and said, we're going to get behind this movie. And, you know, she trotted out maybe a dozen pro La Chinoise reviews beside her own, you know, in that theater system. So that's one of the reasons she was powerful, you know, and, and she was, uh, you know, quite charismatic. But, uh, you know, it was a, a, a weird thing because I, I, I had gone to New York I, I couldn't see the films I wanted to see in Grand Rapids, and I'd been reading about them. So I went to Columbia for a summer, and just to, just to take film classes and then go to all the rep theaters. You know, hitting them all day, every day, the bleaker, the Thalia, making notes, seeing every single film, making notes about them. And that was my task for the summer, to educate myself. And uh, and I was talking to someone at the West End Bar and about Pauline's book, and he uh, said, you want to meet her? And he goes away, comes back, he said, we're going over tomorrow night. And his name was Paul Warshaw. He was the son of Robert Warshaw, who was an important critic, I think, for the nation. He wrote the first uh, articles on the gangster and on the Western. And he had died young, and he was sort of a Jewish prince. And so Pauline had a very warm spot in her heart for his son. So we went over there, and I had seen maybe by that time a dozen or more films, but I had a lot of opinions. And we just, you know, had dinner there, and it went late into the night, uh, drank a lot. I ended up uh, sleeping on the sofa. And the next morning, uh, she made me breakfast, and she said, um, said, you don't want to be a minister. I was in a seminary. said, you want to be a film critic, and we are going to stay in touch. I want you to... Stay in touch with me every week, 
and I want you to send me everything you write, and um, you know, and that's how it started. And uh, so I was in touch with her that summer, and I went back to Calvin, and I corresponded with her. I sent her everything I wrote, and uh, then it came to graduation time, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and she had once said, I can get you into UCLA Film School. I had no credits. I had no right to get in there, but that was the 60s, and, you know, she picked up the phone and said to Colin Young, head of the department, you know, you should you should admit this student. Amazing. And, and he did. Amazing. But is it true that you, like, <laughs> you got kicked out of UCLA as well? No, no, I... I uh, UCLA, I got, no, I got my MA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just quit, and I said to Colin Young, it, w- it was in a different time then, you know, because you're, si- you're sitting there in the, with the head of the department in the jacuzzi doing, you know, smoking dope. And uh, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. Uh, I think I've learned enough here. I was, a, I was writing a book. I was a, a head of that magazine, had a, a, a reviews. I said, I, I think I've learned enough here. I'm going to move on. I said, but I think, I think you're going to want me as a graduate. And he said, uh, he said, well, what, what do you have to do? I said, well, I have to take my language exam. I've got eight hours of courses to do yet, and I have to, and I have to do a master's thesis. He said, okay, you take your language exam. We'll give you eight hours of credit for your reviews, and the book you're writing will call your master's. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the, 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 the one I did quit in, in, uh, in some anger was uh, AFI. I was, a, right. I was the first-year fellow there with Terry Malick and Stanton Kay and a lot of uh, Dave Lynch, a lot of interesting people. You said that there were two falling outs that you ultimately had with Kale. Was the first one, did that have anything to do with it being a kind of betrayal that you got into the film business instead of leaving criticism? The first one is um, she had got me a job. I was visiting her at Christmas and we were in her, I was in her place and she said, I've got two openings for you. I said, one's in Chicago and one's in Seattle. Chicago, I don't think you should do because Roger's there. But Seattle, I think, is the perfect place for you. Now, this is a, this is a, a prestigious gig. It's good. And you, you, it will set you off and you will be a film critic, you know, self-sufficient film critic. And I had been sort of thinking about maybe writing a script. And I said, um, okay, well, it's, you know, it's two days before Christmas. Let me think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll answer you in a week. And she said, no, I want an answer now. I said, what do you mean you want to answer now? Who are you going to report to? Tomorrow is Christmas Eve. And she said, no, I want an answer now. I said, well, Pauline, if you put it that way, well, the answer is no. And then all of a sudden we just sat there and the room got ice cold. And I got up and I said, well, I guess I'm going to go. And I walked out and that was the end. I got a, a, went, on to, went to the airport the next day and I said, well, there goes your career as a film critic. <laughs> you just burnt that bridge. And then uh, we made up again. Um, and, and, but then I had a, another fight with her when she was over at Paramount. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we broke up again over that. And then when I moved up to Westchester, I, I started. I, I just prevailed. I, I just went up there. Yeah. At the Barrington. And. Uh, and uh, and particularly when she got sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it just. I didn't want. I you know she was a mother figure and an important person, and I didn't. 
I, I just did not want it to end in a cold way. What did you make, ultimately, of her 70s criticism? I mean, what did you make of some of her loves, her dislikes, her pets? I mean... Yeah, she was running out of juice. Um, I mean, that's why she ended up getting suckered by Warren, because she was looking for a career change. And she said at one point to me, you know, it's, just not, it's just not fun anymore. So you could feel her winding down, and so that when Warren offered her that uh, sucker's pitch, you know, she went for it. But I, I felt that she was getting too close to certain people. I felt that her uh, affection for Altman was uh, displaced and inordinate. Uh, her, you know, her feelings for Brian, I felt were inordinate. You, you could feel her being seduced a little bit by her own power that her insider status you would say about mid 70s was yeah. happening yeah yeah i mean you know uh you know when you know when warren has you on auto dial but they didn't have auto dial but that concept you know it's very seductive well the idea is that warren Beatty wants her to help produce the james Kobach film but she did leave hollywood about nine months later mortified kind of horrified by what happened to her and according to brian kello who in his biography of kale and i think it should be noted about kale's importance that i think it is the only biography of a film critic that has been published in the u.s there has not been another biography of a film critic solely a film critic that can give you kind of an idea of pauline's import at a a certain to a certain degree but there kind of seems to be holes in differing views as to what happened with kale in hollywood now you and kale were on speaking terms for a while while she was at paramount and then there was kind of a a crack but what do you think happened What, what 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 happened during that thing there's so many conspiracy theories about it well i mean she wanted a change in life, and she was convinced that Warren was going to have this film made. Now, it, not he wasn't necessarily going to star in it, but he, he was uh, probably one of the most powerful producers in town, and if Warren really wanted something made, he would get it made, and he was tireless and relentless, and, uh, you know, even if it took you know, 40 years to do Howard Hughes, he does it. And so, uh, but I... Uh, I, I honestly believe that he played her. I remember when I heard the news, I first heard the news, I said, no, that's not true. It can't be true. And then, and then I thought a little bit, and I thought, fuck, he did it, didn't he? Did it. He did the one thing everybody in this town has been wanting to do, you know? And uh, because they they were afraid of her. They didn't like her. They didn't like her power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here he did Here he puts her on a leash and, uh, you know, walks her around Paramount. Unbelievable. And uh, and uh, it was then I had to confront her again because I started hearing stories. And uh, she had said, she was, now she was going on the Hollywood party circuit. And she had been bad-mouthing me, uh, saying that... Uh, I, I should be a, I should not be a director, and I was at Paramount prepping Gigolo, and so I invited her to lunch at Nicodell's, and I said, Pauline, you know, you can say whatever you want about me in print. I don't care. You have, in fact, said terrible things about me in print, and that's fine. That's your that's your job. But when you badmouth me at a Hollywood party, you are no longer acting as a critic. You are acting as an insider, and you are trying to destroy my livelihood. And you must stop it. 
And uh, so, <laughs> how does she take that? Well, you know, she hemmed and hawed, you know. But the point was made. But it is true. I mean, her reviews of your first two movies are pretty bad. Um, hardcore being worse than the Blue Collar review. But you yourself have admitted that those were two very problematic movies for you, and that they were practice movies for you in a way before you finally got to Gigolo. And, and, and then, as a favor to me, she stopped reviewing my films. Right. Uh, I think from... Cat people. Uh, yeah. From, at one point, she just never reviewed me again. And uh, and I, actually, I was appreciative because I'd, uh, as much as I would have liked to have her give a good yeah. review, I'd rather have no, re- no review than a bad review. Did she like Patty Hearst? I don't think she reviewed her. No? I know she didn't review Mishima. I thought she, I would yeah. love to see what she said about that. <laughs> what do you also think of her rather negative Raging Bull review came from? And I asked that as both a fan of hers and a fan of the movie. Was that in that weird period? Had something happened that tilted her toward not liking it and she was reaching for something negative there? Or did it just genuinely offend her sensibility? I have no idea. I mean, she very proudly stated that she never saw a movie more than once. And, you know... And what hit her in that hour and a half, two hours, it was all that mattered. And she never changed her opinion. She never went back. And, you know, if she had a bad viewing experience, that was that. You couldn't go to her and say, you should look at it again. You should rethink that. That was not the way she worked. So you don't agree with her when she got overly hyperbolic and said something about Brian De Palma's The Fury that no Hitchcock thriller was ever so intense, <laughs> went so far, or had so many classic sequences. Was that part of the problem she was experiencing at the end of the 70s? Yeah, I mean, you know, she was losing she was l- losing traction. She was losing uh, her balance. Did you ever notice if she had any kind of sexual life, or was her sexual life really just the movies? Well, I mean, you know, she was uh, married to the poet, James Broughton, who was gay. Gay, right, yeah. gay. And uh, another gay husband. Wasn't there two two gay husbands? I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then she had uh, you know, this whole circle of young men, um, and, uh, and there, no, there were no uh, women in the circle. And uh, I remember one day one critic was foolish enough to bring his girlfriend with us. We were all sitting there, and the girlfriend went to the bathroom, and Pauline got out the knife and just cut her to shreds. And then she comes back to the bathroom, and (laughs) we go back to talking about movies. Speaking of Warren Beatty, uh, Warren Beatty had wanted to star in Hardcore in the role that ultimately went to George C. Scott, but only if the daughter in your screenplay, which you were going to direct, and Beatty didn't want you to direct, escapes her religious community and falls into the porn world in L.A., and he wanted her to turn into a wife, which did not interest you at all. What were your impressions of Warren Beatty in that moment, and and what are your impressions of him now, well, forty years uh, later? You know, I mean, I, uh, I, I very Warren is is quite an impressive man. Uh, we, we would meet about three times a week up in his penthouse at the Beverly Wilshire, and I, I learned something. Uh, you would have an argument with him, and then it would usually take. 
two to three hours, and you would pace it through over a certain point. And at the end of three hours, you would win the point, and that would be that day's work. Then you would go back a couple days later, and the argument would begin exactly where it left off. Mm. It was Groundhog Day. Mm. And, you, and he, would, he would be ever so <coughs> patient, and you would go through the whole thing again. Until finally you realized, I will never win this argument. I will only win by acceding to him. Uh, and, and then then that's when it occurred to me. I said, no wonder he gets so much pussy. He just wears them down. <laughs> he keeps asking and discussing. Finally, they say, all right, okay. I also bring him up because I was talking to a reporter who, who was here recently interviewing him in L.A., and the reporter was really surprised, knew a lot about Beatty, and was uh, interviewing him for the movie that's coming out, his Howard yeah. Hughes movie. And uh, the reporter told me that uh, they were very surprised about how manipulative Beatty was in the interviews and also how much he lied in them and that there was a lying manipulator at work across the table from their sessions. And it made it very kind of odd because he was also very flirtatious. So it was a strange combination that was swirling around the reporter's head. Does that jibe with the Warren you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he would just uh, wear you down. He would never get... Angry, he never never get hostile, and but finally in the end, you know, he owned you. So the seventies are coming to a close as you prepare American Gigolo for release. Now looking back on that decade, I really don't know this. Who were the American filmmakers that you were most interested in? I guess what do you think of Bob Altman? What do you think of Hal Ashby? Peter Bogdanovich. Was there anyone that you really there were that now that now looking back? When- I, I, I like Ashby a lot. I tried to write a script for him. Uh, Peckinpah, I knew and was you know very very uh, devoted to him. He was probably the, the main one. Nick Rogue, I was very I knew was a very influential. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about my favorite movie of yours, briefly, American Gigolo, which, as I said in the intro, was a wildly influential movie on so many levels, but especially in the way we look at men in movies and we sexualize them. And it's also the film that you said was your first real movie in terms of finally understanding how to make a film. And it leads to Cat People and Mishima, I think two of your films that many people think are your finest. Watching American Gigolo again yesterday, I was reminded how you've often talked about movies as neither a straight or gay experience, that viewing cinema is essentially a bisexual experience. Can you explain what you meant by that? I, I remember a long time ago you were explaining this theory. And where, where was your headspace when you were making Gigolo? Well, that's not my theory. That's Parker Tyler's. Right, part, right. And he wrote a book called Screening the Sexes, uh, which was a very influential book for me. And he talked about the film experience as a rainbow. This was before the rainbow became a, a kind of cliché. And he says that at different points in your life, you find yourself in different positions on a sexual rainbow. And that uh, a smart artist knows how to move around the rainbow. So that uh, John Wayne knows how to play to the female side of you. And, you know, and Monty Cliff knows how to play to the male side of a woman, you know. And so they're, they're always creating a, a free zone because there's, some, there's a mystery there because they're, they pretend to be one thing, but they're 
you know, just the way John Wayne is walking on on his tippy toes. You know, what's that all about? You know, <laughs> you know, he's up, he's up to something. You know, and um, and so you know that's what Parker Tyler was onto, and uh, and that what the movies really do is that they speak to us in uh, in our sexual complexity, like dreams speak to us. You know, where you can in a dream you can be. You know, uh, multisexual. You can have both organs in a, in a dream. You know, well, in a way, you, you can have it in a movie too. Some American Gigolo trivia: Richard Gere famously replaced John Travolta just weeks before shooting American Gigolo. Christopher Reeve was offered the role and turned it down. And when John Travolta walked off, Julie Christie, who was originally cast in the female lead, walked off as well and was replaced by Lauren Hutton. Meryl Streep was also offered that role but passed, saying she didn't like the tone of the movie. So what was John Travolta like compared with Richard Gere? I think the movie automatically improved with the casting of Richard Gere, but... What were their differences, and would American Gigolo have been substantially different with Travolta in that role or not? I don't know. It's hard to know. Uh, you know, that same summer, three well-known actors dropped out of three films, and all the replacements became stars. Uh, George Segal dropped out of uh, ten. Dudley Moore became a star. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Richard Dreyfuss dropped out of all that jazz. Roy Scheider became a star. So you you just don't know. But uh, with John, I found out I found out through Scientology that he was going to drop out. His mother had died. He was very upset about that flop he did with uh, uh, Lily Tomlin. Moment by moment. And he was also freaked about the the, the homosexual stuff. The gay rumors about it. Yeah. And uh, Karen Black, who was in Scientology with him and was living with uh, Kit Carson, Karen told Kit that John is going to drop out, that he's talking about dropping out of the film. So Kit calls me on a Wednesday and says, John's going to drop out of your film. Now, I know that in that era, bad news always happens at 5 o'clock on Friday because you, you, you turn off, you create the bad news, you turn off the phone, you get in your car, and nobody can reach you till Monday. Uh, so I, I knew I had two days before that would hit because it, just, it wouldn't hit until 5 o'clock on Friday. So uh, I got the copy of the script over to uh, Gear, who was in town. Um, and uh, and then sure enough, on Friday, John dropped out and Diller said to me, uh, I want to go to... Chris Reed. Now, I knew that was also coming, and uh, so I, I poisoned the well. I called up Chris, Chris's agent and said, they're going to offer you American Gigolo. I think Chris is wrong for it. Uh, and the agent said, thanks for telling me. We, we won't even read it. So that, so that well was poisoned. So then uh, I had to figure out what to do about gear. Now, I knew that uh, Freddie Fields was the producer, and he was going to sue John Travolta and join him, keep him from work. Paramount wanted John for Urban Cowboy. Now, it was another part of that uh, Purple Mafia group, uh, Jim Bridges, Bridges, and Barry Diller. And uh, so I went over to Gear's place on Sunday. (laughs) The football game was on. And uh, he was very, very reticent to do it. And I said, look, you know, Richard, um, 
this game is going to be over in a half hour and I'm going to leave and if you don't say yes that's going to be a no so finally the game winded down and says yes okay I'll do it so now I have to I go over to Barry Diller's house and uh, I slip a note under the gate saying urgent I need to speak to Barry and he comes out and he's you know uh, upset, you know, it's, it's Sunday night. Why are you coming to my house? And I said, I just offered the the role of American Jiggle to Richard Gere, and he's accepted. He said, You're, You couldn't do that. You, you can't do that. I said, I know that. Uh, but tomorrow morning, there's going to be an announcement that Freddie Fields is in seeking to enjoin the services of John Travolta, and I am a part of that lawsuit. That's one announcement that can happen tomorrow morning. Another announcement is that John has dropped out. We respect his wishes. We are moving forward with Richard Gere. And then you will have John for Urban Cowboy. Now, which one of these things do you want to play out tomorrow? And he said, uh, let me think about it. About two hours later, he called me up and said, okay, we'll go with Gere. <laughs> and then, so then they had uh, John for Urban Cowboy. Well, it is. I mean, the main reason, the, the rumor is that Travolta got cold feet because of what he saw as the gay overtones of American Gigolo. But um, is American Gigolo a gay movie in that respect? And is Julian Kay homosexual? I mean, it's, it's, not a gay, it's not as gay as it should have been. You know, it's a very strange to look back with the... With the PC goggles of today, something that happened in 1979. At the time I made the film, most of my friends, the inner circle was, was gay. It was the whole Scarfiati crowd, Paul mm-hmm. Jasmine, uh, Michael Childers, you know, and, and Nando would have people over every single weekend, and, and about half gay. So. I considered the film as operating in the gay universe. Mm-hmm. Now I look back on it, and I realize that it really was kind of cowardly that uh, I should have made it much more gay. But uh, at the time, we thought we were being brave. Now I look back and say, you know, it looks like we were being cowardly. But at the time, we thought we were being brave by promoting this uh, androgynous male uh, entitlement. You and I met a couple of times before in the 80s and in the 90s, but very briefly. And then we reconnected because of a script I originally wrote for Lionsgate called Bait, which was a revenge thriller set on a yacht off the Florida coast with a group of young people. And I think everyone dies. I think it's very gory, very sexual. Uh, And yes, there is a school of sharks uh, surrounding the anchored yacht. Uh, everything seemed to be moving pretty quickly. The money seemed to be there. We had Anton Yelchin and Emmy Rossum set to star. And then about a month before shooting, uh, the money fell through. Uh, and I think, honestly, that movie's moment has passed. I mean, I think it could have been done maybe three years ago. It's just too expensive now. And also, I'm too <clears throat> old to make a film on water. Yeah. Sorry. I was very curious. I didn't see it in the movies. I watched last week um, the uh, Blake Lively shark thriller called The Shallows. Yeah. 
just because I was curious to see what people were doing with sharks now, and it was it was mud. But uh, well, because of the fallout of bait, uh, this leads us to the canyons, which we did such an insane amount of press on in 2013 that there's really no need to go over that story at all. Uh, the New York Times was pretty thorough about the experience, but it has been a few years now since we did that, and my feeling about the experience was pretty amazing, and I really liked the movie, and I don't say that about other movies that I've either written or produced. And as time goes on, and I'm not saying this in any kind of self-congratulatory way, that was a pretty great experience making that movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, every film has a different kind of challenge. And one of the challenges was, can we actually do this? I mean, I remember saying to you, you know, uh, Brett, people are always changing your work. People are always changing my work. The economics of, of the industry are such that maybe we can just do it ourselves. Do you think that's possible? And I didn't even know if it was possible. So part of the challenge was just to see, can we do this? Uh, and having done it, of course, I'll never do it again. <laughs> it was, uh, you know. Well, look, it was. I, I caught a, a caught a part of the canyons a few weeks ago, and I and I noticed when Lindsay Lohan was great. I noticed when she was a little less committed or distracted. I also noticed when she was drunk. And even though I was rarely on set, I was a prize of all the stories. And the one time I was on set was the morning she was not going to arrive on set because she had been partying with Lady Gaga at the Chateau the night before. And she told everyone she had an ear infection and yeah. couldn't get it to the set. Ultimately, she got to the set. And the Lindsay Lohan uh, train wreck has been well documented. But you have worked in your career with very difficult actors at times. Probably, you know, most famously, Richard Pryor on Blue Collar. But why is an actor difficult? Who were some of the more difficult actors you worked with, and what do you do with a difficult actor? Well, you know, actors are often unhappy when they don't respect themselves and then respect what they're doing. Oh, Pryor was, you know, the unhappiest, angriest person I've ever come across. Uh, Lindsay has just had some bad wiring. Uh, George was, um, Scott was, uh, was very angry at that particular point in his life. making hardcore. Yeah, and he, he, was, he was drinking a lot and he was angry over the fact that he had directed these two films and they both flopped and... Uh, so, but, um, but you know, actors tend to live on the edge of their skin. And, um, and you know, that's a dangerous thing. Uh, you know, when they look in the mirror, they see the enemy. They see the person who can destroy them or make them live. I mean, um, the uh, the best description, I think, of an actor is the one that Yukio Mishima gave in um, Forbidden Colors. Now, let me think and get it, try to get it right. He said, when you combine the feeling an older woman has when a younger woman walks in the room with the feeling a man has when he knows he's been cuckolded, you know what an actor feels like each time he looks in the mirror. Part of the problem that I had with the Canyons ultimately was uh, the reception and the overall tone of the bad reviews. And I have to say, with the exception of David Thompson, who hated the movie, the critics that I like, uh, Richard Brody, Owen Gleiberman, Alonzo Duralde, and even Manola Dargis, who didn't like the movie but treated it seriously to a 
degree, to name a few, did like it. And they kind of understood what we were doing. I mean, they are in a major minority. Uh, but what was your feeling about the critical savagery? Well, I mean, there was a lot of finger wagging. Um, you know, I mean, um, it was. I think it was all Lindsay. Um, uh, you know, I'm basically saying, you know, you can't do that. You've been bad. You've been bad. Right. Uh, and um, they just couldn't uh, separate themselves. I, I said this to uh, Eric uh, Kroll, who reviewed it for IndieWire, who's now become a friend subsequently. I said, Eric, if you were so stupid, you, you didn't review the movie. You re- reviewed the phenomenon. And it's easier to review the phenomenon than to actually review the film. And so there was a lot of finger wagging saying, you can't, you, Lindsay can't do that. You can't use a porn star. Naughty, naughty, naughty. And um, it was just whacked in my mind. But uh, um, I'm very happy the way that the film turned out and uh, it made money. And uh, and uh, it's a very interesting asterisk in my life. Is there anyone writing about movies now that you respond to? Or is it hard when American movie culture is kind of where it's at and it's so niche and there's so many blogs, so many people? <laughs> Uh, and what is there to write about? I mean, I've seen very little this year to get even remotely excited by, and yet I'm shocked when I see a dozen movies have had a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I see these movies, and I go, and what are critics doing? Is it just grade inflation to make their jobs seem relevant? Um, what is your take about the current critis- uh, critical culture right now? Uh, there are certain critics you know so you can judge by them. So Denby, although Denby is now out of a job, but uh, someone like uh, uh, Brody or Manola or Tony Scott, you can read that review and say, oh, I will be interested in that film. Oh, I won't be interested in that film, no matter what they say, because you you know their taste. True. And so, you know, that's very helpful. And then occasionally uh, you will come across an article that is really insightful. Uh, it takes, uh, you know, a, a good film to, to make a good article, too. Uh, you know, I think one of the great films of the last year was Sils Maria. Olivia But, you know, I'm still writing. Uh, I've been working on a piece now for several years. Uh, I'm almost finished. It's out for peer review now. Peer review. Two of the ugliest words in the English language. This is for film comment? No, this is for you, Cal Press. It's a new version of um, Transcendental Style. Mm -hmm, It's called Rethinking Transcendental Style, and it takes that tendency, slow cinema, from Tarkovsky, who emerged just after I finished the book, to today, and uh, analyzing this hydra-headed monster that slow cinema has become. And, and uh, so that, that's a very time-consuming thing because they're, they're making slow movies faster than we can watch them. And I've been watching a lot of slow movies. But uh, I, I wanted to sort of round off that book, you know, go back 50 years later. And so uh, that, that I think will come out next year. You were one of the first filmmakers to openly write about and talk about what a movie is now in this day and age. And, um, you know, what is a movie now anyway? A movie might be a five-minute YouTube video or 70 hours of a TV series as well as a one-hour and 45-minute movie you watch in a theater. 
But the limitation of the American theatrical movie has never been more apparent to me now than it has been this year. It's lost its specialness. No one seems to care. And the disappearance of the theatrical experience, I think, affects the ambitions of filmmakers. And there are more terrible movies than ever being made. And as I said earlier, there were 30 of them open in L.A. last Friday. There are 30 of them opening in L.A. next Friday. I don't want to see any of them. Often when I watch a movie now, I think... It's just not cutting it as a film. It seems so narrow compared to the 10-hour miniseries like The Night Of or The People versus O.J. Simpson. My assistant just turned 23, uh, and when I hired him earlier this summer, he had just graduated from film school at USC and had interned at Megan Ellis' company, Annapurna, uh, during USC. And when I asked him what kind of movies uh, his classmates wanted to make, he said, Movies? We don't want to make movies. Uh, We don't want to make movies at all. No one wants to be a film director. What does that mean? We just want to make everything. Does that jibe more or less with some of the ideas that you posited in these great film comment pieces you wrote about the future of film? Does that – do you feel vindicated in a way that this is where we're at? The movies had a 100-year bargain with capitalism, and uh, they got a – free ride for 100 years, uh, they, unlike the other arts. And a lot of people made money because you know, the, the bargain was, if you'll pay to see it, we'll make it for you. And, and it was just the easiest way to make money year after year. And then technology broke the chains between cha- capitalism and film. And movies became like other art forms, like painting, like poetry, like literature. It was now possible to make a movie for nothing and it was also possible to lose making a movie for nothing so just like in the past if only 5% of musicians ever made a living at it now we have that same situation with film in the past virtually everybody who made movies made money now we're going to have this profile where you can actually be a filmmaker and lose money you can make a film for $50,000 and lose $50,000. And so that has uh, changed the whole concept. Uh, And uh, the theatrical part now is, you know, becoming a niche. It's not going to end. It will endure. Uh, There's need for it, for spectacle, for IMAX, for 3D, and eventually uh, Sensorama, uh, and some interfacing with virtual. That that will be... uh, Entertainment rides and movies are converging, and and, yes. and so there'll always be that thing. There will be the um, esoteric art house thing, uh, and and the Alamo Draft House model, which is essentially a social model where you you have, you know, like the Metrograph just opened in New York. It has a big restaurant, a big bar, mm-hmm. a big store, and two small theaters. Right. And it's, you know you go there to, to sort of hang out with other people who like movies, and, and sometimes you see a movie, and sometimes you don't. Uh, th- that experience is successful, but the idea of the multiplex is the one that's gone down. Well, finally, you posted on Facebook during the last year, and I love your Facebook posts. Something along the lines that now at your age you realize that you were one of the few movie brats who followed your artistic impulses more purely than any of the other movie brats who also kept their eye occasionally on commerce, on, on explicitly commercial subjects. 
And you hinted in your post that to be a truly successful director in America, you needed to be a very smart businessman as well as an artist. And that you wished in a way, and maybe I'm reading in between the lines in this post, but that you wished in a way or you lamented that maybe you should have been less pure and maybe indulge some of your more commercial instincts at points where you just didn't want to do it. Am I reading in between the lines there, or well, do you look back I mean, and sometimes think that? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you look around at, uh, uh, you know, you look at uh, Spielberg's $200 million boat and you say, hmm, but what in the hell would I do with a $200 million boat? <laughs> You know, I don't want a two hundred million dollar boat, um, and uh, and you know that that path toward accommodation is uh, a very fraught one. You, it, it doesn't leave you. Um, it's not an easy one. Uh, I had dinner a year or two ago with Pavel Pavlovsky, who did the film Ida. Mm-hmm. Very, very won the beautiful. Oscar. Yeah. yeah. And Foreign language film, yeah. He had just been offered a chance to work in this country with Angelina Jolie, a $20 million film. And he was thinking about it. He said he decided to go back to Poland. He said, because if I, if I can make a film for under $2 million in Poland, I can make any film I want. If I come here... No matter what they say to me, if I make a film with Angelina Jolie, they'll take it from me. And when you walk down that road and you don't realize that you are not your own master, then you are somewhat to blame. 